All right, everybody. Well, welcome to the fourth episode of Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. Um, and you can li- check out the Flashpoint's print edition at owenhiggins.substack.com. That's E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S.substack.com. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about people's left turn, how people have moved to the left over the past five to 10 years. So I've been, I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Um, And one of the main reasons is that in media, a lot of the time we are uh, presented with a vision of the U S that is that says that the country is politically a pretty right-wing place. And this kind of pervades our politics and, you know, the way that our political system is presented to us in media and and the way that it is presented to us by politicians themselves. But that's not necessarily true. If, If you go and really look at the data or you ask people question to question what they think, country is actually a lot more left-leaning on a policy-to-policy issue than you would think. Now, uh, in 2013, and I, I realize that this is eight years old, and, and in a way, it's a little out of date, but I think it's so important that in 2013, University of California, Berkeley, a few graduate students there did some research, and they found that politicians tend to vastly overestimate just how conservative their constituents really are. That is uh, a quote from an NBC News article on this. So essentially, uh, I'll I'll read from the NBC piece here. The paper co-authored by Christopher Scavron of the University of Michigan and David Brockman, uh, Brookman of the University of California, Berkeley, Finds that conservative politicians in particular are terrible at gauging the political views of their constituents. For example, they tend to underestimate support for policies like universal health care and same-sex marriage, like I said, it's a little dated, by as much as 20 percentage points. Liberal politicians underestimate support for those policies too, but not by nearly as much. And the paper's authors themselves write, quote, nearly half of sitting conservative office holders appear to believe that they represent a district that is more conservative on these issues than the most conservative legislative district in the entire country. So, yes, that's from 2013. But that is, I think, kind of the way that we are told and taught to think about politics and politicians. But if you look at reality, if you look at the way that elections have been going recently in this country and obviously trump is is a good exception to this rule but you know there's also the success of bernie there's the success of the so-called uh squad um aoc ilhan omar ayanna presley cory bush jamal bowman etc i think that there is a good case to be made that these people winning especially going up against the party establishment shows that the politics of this country are not as black and white conservative as they've been portrayed. So I was interested in exploring this and, and going into why that might be. So 
I put out a call for people to tell me their stories about how they shifted to the left over the last few years, last five to 10 years, basically. And I have to say, and I realize that this is a self-selecting group, right? You know, these are my followers. I'm not followed by a whole bunch of right-wing people, obviously. But the response was overwhelming. I, I think I had between 200 and 300 replies or, uh, you know, direct messages within two or three hours max. Uh, and that is, you know, an, an overwhelming amount of material to get through. And I'm not going to pretend that I was able to get everybody's story. So if you're listening to this and I didn't get your story, I'm sorry. Uh, but I was able to to get a few dozen people to tell me their stories. And I've started to put those into articles. And the first one came out on Wednesday and it's called, and then nothing happened for more Democrats on how inaction pushed them left. Now this article really kind of got into people who identified as center or even liberal Democrats at, you know, kind of any point, really any point in the last 20 years, because uh, I, th- I think, you know, one of our callers is going to talk about Kerry. So, uh, you know, it does go back that long, but, but mostly like last five, 10 years, a lot of people said that they were really, really excited in 2008, 2012, when Barack Obama came into office and he rode this wave of this kind of what seemed to be anti-war sentiment and progressive change. And what ended up happening was just, they just folded. It seemed like Democrats just folded on everything. Uh, The ACA, you know, the implicative promise, the implied promise that Obama made to people was that there was going to be universal health care. What he ended up delivering was a warmed over version of a Heritage Foundation designed healthcare plan that had been pioneered in Massachusetts by his future uh, opponent, Mitt Romney. You know, there was all of Obama's foreign policy, which, you know, he, he upped the drone war. He didn't really draw down in Iraq the way that I think a lot of us would have liked him to do when the NSA revelations came out from uh, Edward Snowden. The response to that was to basically try to capture Snowden, bring him back to the U.S., and one has to assume, throw him into a hole where he never would have been found again, like they are obviously planning on doing to Julian Assange. For similar reasons, because Julian Assange published those videos about Chelsea Manning, or uh, the, the videos that Chelsea Manning gave Assange and WikiLeaks of the war crimes in Iraq. So a lot of reasons to be disappointed with Obama, and I think Megan, uh, a 36-year-old in Oklahoma, I I think that her quote really kind of sums it up. So, quote, I did that whole register people, drive them to the polls, have an election party with $5 champagne for Obama's first election because change and all that. And then nothing happened. And I heard this again and again from people that they had been so excited and so enthusiastic that finally they were going to have a candidate who was going to represent them and somebody who was going to really pushed forward these progressive promises that they had made. And instead what they got was a centrist Democrat or even somebody who would have been a centrist Republican during the Reagan years. I've heard a lot of people say that. And I think that there, I think that to an extent that's definitely true. Um, 
Now, in 2016, I think a lot of us found a champion in Bernie Sanders, but the deck was stacked against him. So even though he made a go of it against Hillary Clinton, it still wasn't enough to to beat back the establishment. And But the good thing about Bernie, I think, is that what he was able to do was to really let people understand that there was a way for a more liberal democratic party uh, to arise. And I think the people brought that energy into 2020. And when it happened again, I mean, what people told me, what I've seen as well, anecdotally, it just, it just shoved people way to the left, way to the left. Um, And, you know, people, people who I've talked to for this story, would just tell me, you know, now they're just like, hardcore communists or, or, you know, extreme socialists because, uh, and that they reject the democratic party. Now Mitchell, 29 years old from California, you know, he said, if I had to pinpoint the media response after he Bernie won Nevada and then the subsequent events in South Carolina and grouping around Biden sealed the deal and what he means sealed the deal for him leaving the democratic party. And I think Mitchell is, is, is a great example here because, um, we know each other a little bit, and he was uh, a Democrat before that, and they they lost him. They lost him. Yeah. So uh, I also spoke to people about defining moments that shift them left, shifted them left. Uh, you know, whether they were personal or kind of system wide uh, events. You know, the pandemic, pandemic insurance, seeing what the government was able to do. That was for Julio, a uh, 32-year-old from Texas, told me that, that, that uh, you know, getting the unemployment allowed him to live in a way that he hadn't been able to live on his, on his prior salary. Um, Colette Shade, who is a writer from Baltimore, told me that getting out of school and into the workforce during the recession, you know, that, like, that, like these are big, big issues that made it so that... Uh, these people were, you know, able to move left because of these external forces that were, that were changing their lives. Um, and I also just want to talk here about, um, let me find him, Tom Smith, uh, who is a 59 year old from New Jersey. I think that, you know, his story is pretty interesting because, you know, not all of these going left stories are going to involve people who are going to socialist or, communist or, or any kind of far left. I mean, some of this stuff, Tom Smith, you know, he said he went from being a Clinton Obama Democrat to being a Warren Democrat. And he said that what pushed him over further to the left was the George Floyd protests, the, you know, finding out about these, this, uh, well, not finding out, but, but finally confronting this system of, of, uh, racial preference that, had benefited him his whole life. And I think that all of this stuff is really interesting because it pushes back against this idea that Americans are just right wing and, you know, they're just, uh, they don't really know like how to have a left in the country. I mean, look, I, I think that it's, pro- I mean, I think you could easily say that, uh, that we don't know how to have a left in this country, but I think that, th- th- it's not that the 
it's not the conditions don't exist. It's not that the people don't have the interest in the politics. It's just that there are a lot of structural issues that are holding it back. So um, I know there are a couple of people here who want to talk about their journey. So I'm just going to open that up and I'm going to open up to Alex first. You're good. You're good. Okay. <laughs> hey, everyone. Um, yeah, uh, it's definitely been the case with me um, moving left kind of like post Bernie. Uh, I voted for Bernie in 2016. Uh, in 2020, I was uh, team Warren just because I thought she would appeal to more like uh, kind of like middle of the road to progressive people so that we could like win something and get these things passed. Um, but Bernie was my number two. Um, and then in the middle of all this debacle, basically after they shoved Joe Biden on us, I, um, I joined DSA and, uh, because I had heard that they were winning like a, a ridiculous amount of their elections, like 75, 80%, something like that. And I wanted to understand what they were doing differently. And as I joined, I just, I learned a lot about socialism. And, and prior to that, I had been pretty, pretty fairly indoctrinated against it living in South Florida and growing up with the Cuban step family and this kind of thing. Um, but, you know, as I joined DSA, I realized like the things that I had seen that were broken and why things are the way they are um, was a failure of the system and not just like, you know, these arcane terrible the rules that we have that had you know it was responsible for us having a broken senate um but um but yeah so i you know i joined dsa and um at that point i, I started to kind of understand the way you know why things are the way they are um and i think that that the public being uh I guess like a, a good the, the fact that you got a lot of responses about people that moved left, for example, is um, because Bernie was able to capture um, the American voters' imagination, and I think that the media and uh, corporate politicians kind of beat the imagination out of us. <laughs> um, yeah, Alex. And, Alex. Go ahead. Alex, yeah, can I ask you kind of a, like a more direct question? Because obviously, like you know. We know each other a little bit on social media and and i've noticed that you know you've gone you've gone pretty far left pretty quickly um and and i'm just wondering like it, it seemed like there was kind of a snowball effect and can you kind of talk about like what that was yeah yeah i think uh, it started with me joining dsa um and then just kind of like reading you know reading some basic things like hottest tears uh people's guide to capitalism um but and then just talking to other left leaning people and realizing that the stuff that I didn't have an answer for um, and the brokenness of the Democratic Party and realizing that I'm not going to get anything out of this party um, pushed me to kind of like a systemic answer um, versus my original answer was, was which was just replace every single Democrat, which, you know, it's the, the system is still in place. And so there's a part of me that thinks it's a good strategy. But on the other hand, it thinks you know, it's the system that's the problem and it incentivizes corruption and all this stuff that we're dealing with. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty quick because I joined DSA and I joined DSA because the Democrats were failing all over the place in front of me. <laughs> would you say, would you say that there were any, like, uh, any, any, anything, I mean, it sounds like what you're talking about are like these big system wide issues. Was, was there anything, Maybe more personal. I mean, if you don't want to talk about it, like that's totally fine. But kind of like these more like personal events that because sometimes 
these things can kind of happen in tandem with each other, right? Like you can have these kind of larger systemic shifts in your mind. I don't, I don't know that I'm kind of mangling the way this is coming out, but you know, uh, but, but, you know, like you're looking at the whole thing and then, but things are also happening like in your life that are kind of changing the way that you're looking at things. Like you said that you were in South Florida. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah it was a, it was a mess. I mean, with the pandemic and everything and, um, and I, I, this was right. I joined DSA, I think right around the time that Joe Biden chose Kamala Harris. So I think that was pretty much it for me with the Democrats at that point, um, because like it was like, OK, we have no shot of even getting somebody progressive as like number two. Like we're not, you know, this party is committed to um, to the status quo. And uh, and then I found out, OK, this this is a group that's actually winning elections and knows what they're doing. And I was like, OK, like that's that's cool. Let me see what they're up to. I'm just going to learn about how they win elections. And then, you know, I wasn't planning to become a socialist. I literally just joined so I could learn some organizing strategy. And it just kind of seeped into my consciousness at that point. But I, you know, I had a primer from just supporting Bernie in 2016. I was pretty, like, excited about his campaign and posted about him a lot and, you know, that kind of thing. So I I think, like, I had a primer for that. And that that can lead to, like, a faster radicalization to the left than, like, if, if you had, had really no no kind of opening to like progressive politics. Yeah. That's how, that's how they got you. They got you in and then they, they, they changed. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to take Mac now. Uh, let me just do that. I, you know, I've had kind of a long journey to calling myself a socialist. I, uh, and I'm not, I'm an attorney and kind of came from like a wealthy family in the, New York suburbs. So it's, you know, I guess I'm probably not at least originally what, you know, in the past people would prototypically think of as someone who'd come to call themselves a socialist. But yeah, I, uh, I guess I turned 18 right before the Kerry Bush election and voted for him. Um, just cause, you know, it's kind of the typical 18 year old at that time, liberal, anti-war liberal, uh, hate George Bush, uh, you know, peak John Stewart Daily Show kind of year. And then in 08, the Obama election, I was a senior in college and I, we, you know, we ended up, you know, graduating into a recession. I graduated into the previous recession and I think I was the only one of my friends who I, I lucked out, had a job, but I think I was the only one of my at least close friends who had a job coming out of college. And I was, you know, we, I remember being in college in 08 and we literally, when Obama, when they called it for Obama, we literally all like poured into the streets to celebrate. Like, I don't know, I've not seen anything like that, you know, like just such unbridled happiness, kind of the, you know, to, for the, the campaign slogan, the hope we had for what was going to happen and slowly became very disenchanted with, you know, the eight when the ACA process happened and let, you know, the like just thinking back now, the fact that he had 59, possibly 60 votes in the Senate and control of the House and all we got, literally the only thing we got was the ACA. Um, and then just. I don't know, I was convinced at the time he was going to prosecute people for like war crimes that never happened and that disenchanted me and then the 
you know, as we learned about the expansion of the drone war, that really disenchanted me. And we got to, you know, 2016 and, you know, I just, I, I, like, yeah, let me just interrupt you for just one sec. Yeah. Yeah. Of say course, that, of like, for me, um, I, you know, I, I didn't have like a lot of high hopes about Obama coming in. Um, I, you know, I had a professor at the time who just like destroyed any hope that I had for anything, you know, very, <laughs> like very quickly before his inauguration even. But, um, I think that the real, like the real moment when I knew that like that nothing was going to change was when, um, was when he, when he said, you know, we've got to look forward, not back. Like before he even got sworn in, he just like unilaterally announced that, that there were going to be no prosecution. Like they weren't going to do anything. Yeah. That is really disheartening. (laughs) Like, I mean, I think that was probably at the time that was probably my most liberal or left position was like just being very anti-war and very, you know, really upset and really uh, angry about the, you know, all the war crimes that have been happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was just like that was a very big gut punch, like one of the first, um, you know, that just the the fact that there was no consequences for like anyone, I mean, still haven't been any consequences for anyone as you know, we see like with the bombings that happened in Afghanistan and stuff, it just kind of keeps escalating. Um, and yeah, so yeah you're saying 2016, I mean, Oh no, no, it's fine. Yeah. So then 2016, like I, I, you know, <laughs> you have those stupid like quizzes that tell you like who you agree with more on positions, um, and I, you know, I take like a quiz like that and be like, oh yeah, you agree with Bernie. And I still like get behind Hillary on as now is shown was really dumb on quote unquote electability grounds, um, got behind her. And then, you know, as we got into the general election, just seeing how poor a campaign she was running and I you know, hoping it wasn't true, but was becoming convinced beforehand that she was going to lose. And then it did become, tr- it, it was true when it happened election night. Um, and I was kind of like, you know, it was pretty devastating and kind of like, was just, that's kind of what, you know, I don't want to say, you know, kind of broke me, but like made me decide to like fully reinvestigate what, you know, I believed and what I thought like, was the the correct way to approach things. And I started kind of trying to find more like sources outside of, you know, normal kind of liberal sources and looking, started looking into found DSA found, uh, you know, some other, you know, writers on Twitter, other like leftist thinkers, um, modern and reading, uh, you know, pieces. And I think like one of the, pieces that kind of first like pushed me you know really made me rethink kind of uh you know what what socialism was was there was a just uh my wife is a um an attorney who does like eviction prevention so representing people who are you know indigent and about to be evicted because for whatever sorts of reasons and there was a piece on uh that 
Matt Brunig didn't write it, but it was on the People's Policy Project about basically how we should all start, you know, housing should just basically all be public. And it it made like a ton of sense to me and kind of the the um, it was um, Sersha Gowan and I think Ryan Cooper wrote it. Um, yeah, I think I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. And it that like just the the going through, you know, I kind of at least growing up had in the U.S., this view that, oh, public housing is awful and dangerous and them just breaking down how it doesn't have to be, you know, if it's funded and showing how it's been done well in other countries and how that, you know, would alleviate so many of the issues. Um, just because, like, seeing through my wife that so many issues people face just start with not having secure housing. And then this kind of took me down the path and I ended up joining DSA, I think, in 2018. Um, so where did that where did that put you for for 2020? Because it sounds yeah, like still in 2016 you were still kind of like not quite there, but but now I mean, you know I, I I know from talking to you like now you're you're there. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I was fully behind Bernie in 2020 in the primaries. I uh, you know, I live in New York, so by the time our primary is so late, like it was. It was just over. I think I, I do think I still went and voted just so I could say I voted for even though the primaries, you know, was kind of a done deal. Um, but I, you know, was behind him, helped, you know, campaign. I was at I went to like the that queen that rally that happened in Queens with uh, AOC right after he had his heart attack that kind of like re kicked off his campaign when people thought he might have to drop out. Um, and then when we hit. Like I was very excited after the win um, in Nevada and then got very, was very bitter and upset when the kind of whole South Carolina with what seemed like a coordinated dropout by everyone to kind of push everyone behind Biden um, happened. And I, you know, I ended up, I'm not sure what I would have done if I was in more of like, say I lived in Ohio or Michigan or something like that, but in New York, I didn't, you know, I didn't vote for Biden. Um, I voted for Howie Hawkins and like, I was, I was very upset. I'm, I still like am involved in with kind of local democratic politics in the sense of like, I will help campaign for people DSA endorses who, you know, they're running through the democratic party. Cause that's kind of the only way to get into office, but I'm not, you know, I, I no longer will just vote for someone because they are the Democrat, um, which I probably would have done in the past. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because, um, and, and, and I think Alex said this, this too, and, and more, I know, I know you're in the, in, in the listening queue. If you want to come up to the caller, I know you wanted to chat too. Um, but, you know, I, I just think it's, it's interesting to hear about how, the party had your loyalty and then just like ditched it. Like, yeah. you know, like, like, <laughs> and, and, and you know, like I, I, I get it. I, I get that. Um, people I mean, I should say right now that like, I'm not a Democrat. Um, but I, I know that, uh, within the party, like, yeah, you're going to have a primary and somebody's going to win. And I certainly think that, you know, speaking as somebody who was on the outside kind of looking in during 2016, especially, um, it seemed really clear to me 
that Bernie was not going to win that. And that I always thought that the kind of the reaction that said, Hey, you know, it, it, it got stolen from him was like a little overblown because yeah, like, yeah, yeah, sure. The rules were set up so that he would lose, but he knew that going in, like he was playing that game. There was no, you know what I mean? But this time in 2020, it was different oh, yes. because he, had, you know, they had forced through all those changes and I think you're right. Yes. The South Carolina thing. I mean, it, it it's all it's it's like they got what they wanted, which was Biden as the nominee, but it came at the cost of basically like basically what they did was that, like they got Biden as the nominee, but it came at the cost of a lot of their base. And I and I don't know if the Democratic Party has really even uh dealt with that yet or or really like really seen like what that means um so i'm gonna let you talk here but if you're just yeah just joining us and you want to jump in the call queue just hit the call queue um and 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 we'll be talking for uh you know a little while maybe another half hour or so just kind of chatting about how how we've all all got That's you. If you want oh, to keep talking, Max. Oh yeah, sure. sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely been, you know, it's, it's very similar to how I felt. I felt like, I mean, I wasn't supporting Bernie in 2016, but I did feel it was more. It's kind of same as you that like, I don't think I agree. I don't think he expected to win. I do. I, in, in 2020, I felt kind of the opposite that there was at least at some point an opportunity for him to win. Uh, and that people I would have thought would have rather supported had him as a nominee. It became very evident that that was kind of misguided. Um, uh, you know, people like Liz Warren and things like that, who I would have at, at the time was a fan of Warren and would have supported her. And then when she refused to drop out and things like that was kind of very disheartening. Uh, yeah, no, I think this is a really interesting topic. I mean, you're, um, I think there's two different things to discuss here. There's moving left from a sort of policy or ideological perspective. And then there's also moving left from a very active uh, political perspective. So that can mean shifting parties or leaving the Democratic Party or, um, you know, making a point to, to support socialist candidates or even dropping out of the electoral process completely. Um, but I think I've noticed a lot of people at the very least, moving um, ideologically left, which has been really fascinating. I personally grew up um, in a predominantly Republican, maybe middle of the road, you know, moderate Dem kind of uh, a household um, with my dad in particular, always voting Republican. Um, and even he now is at a point where he is moving away from the Republican Party. He He doesn't really want to say that out loud, but he is moving left of where he was. Um, and I think, you know, you were talking up top um, about the way that uh, people misinterpret the electorate. There's this sense that there is, that the United States is a very sort of right-wing conservative um, body populace. And that's just not the case, at least not anymore, and not at this point in time. Um, I think that we all are kind of like, 
we've heard that sort of, if you're not a liberal in your youth, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative in your old age, you have no uh, head, like that adage. Um, and I, I think that something I have come to learn, because I always, I always heard that growing up and I always kind of thought, oh, I guess that's the way that people are supposed to age. But what I'm finding is really, it's wealth, <laughs> not to make everything economics, but, but it is a lot of times wealth that actually makes people become more conservative, um, or at least that is what I have observed. And when people do not feel yeah, like you, they... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can, can you just kind of um, let people know uh, your background? <laughs> Who I <Yeah>. am? <laughs> because I think that's kind of important here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it isn't, it isn't because this is really just sort of a personal observation. But yes, um, I, I'm currently the, the wealth tax campaign director for Americans for Tax Fairness and, um, and helped found Tax March, which is an economic fairness um, organization, a grassroots organization that was started in 2017. But that said, I didn't have any background in economic activism before that at, at any point. This was just, you know, I kind of fell into it. So, I mean, I sort of rapidly moved left in those regards as I learned more. Um, and I would say that these, this sort of idea that I'm expressing now is probably beginning to be formed before I even got involved in any of that work. Um, because again, it was just sort of observational as I saw that, you know, there's not that same, there was only like a brief period of time for a very specific segment of the American population for white people, uh, basically, where they could expect this sort of upward trajectory. And yet all of America is kind of hung on that. We still sort of believe in that idea. But I think now people don't have that same sense that you are going to be more wealthy than your parents were or have uh, more economic security than your parents did. And when that is left behind, I find that people start to really examine their values and then also examine the causes for these things. And once you start once you start going down that path, uh, I think it leads a lot of people to, to move left. That's, that's my big thoughts. I mean, I could talk on this for an hour, but I will not take over your room here, Owen. So thanks well, for well, letting well, me chat. Just, just, just while we have you, um, I mean, can you just talk about kind of your, your journey a little bit? Like, you know, maybe like from five or 10 years ago to where you're at now. I mean, like you said, you had, you, you know, you, you didn't have experience in this, but, but now that's what you do. So how, how did you get yeah. Up there? Yeah, um, it is a good question. I mean, again, I grew up in a, a Republican family. I always sort of, I mean, for me, the entry point to, to not being a Republican was just um, like, was basically just abortion. It was just a really straightforward, I'm pro-choice. That makes me not a Republican. So that put me to the left of um, everyone I knew. But I still had this like desire, I think, for a long time to kind of equivocate to kind of both sides to kind of place myself in the middle because there was something about that, especially as a young person, I'm talking like as a teenager or, you know, even maybe at 20, that felt like that was the responsible, mature adult perspective was to like to consider both sides and to to take this sort of middle ground that felt grown up to me. Um, and so it really was it took me a little while to recognize that I didn't need to sort of impress upon anyone that I was a grown up. Um, and in fact, start accepting that, no, there's, there can be, there can be a right and a wrong here. We don't, we don't have to actually 
uh, taken both sides, especially as one side got more and more extreme and we watched, um, or outwardly more and more extreme, I should say, um, you know, but as, as white supremacy really stopped being something that was uh, even trying to be hidden, um, it became much easier to say, oh, no, no, that's, that's wrong. I don't need to take that into account or try and find a middle ground with that sort of perspective. Um, so that helped me, I think, move strongly to the left. But I, I still had like, you know, I mean, you grow up with a certain perspective. It's, it can be hard sometimes to shed those. Um, and for me, it, it took time to kind of slough off these, these views. Um, and I, I just, I, I don't think it was based in the same sort of electoral moments that a lot of people are noting. I mean, I liked Bernie um, because I thought it was nice to hear someone talk about the idea that things could be different than they were. Um, and I, you know, in the 2008 with Obama, I, I was, I wasn't ever fully bought in to there being sort of an individual who could move us out of things. But, you know, it was certainly a disappointment. Certainly the rhetoric didn't match what was, uh, what was delivered legislatively. So that was kind of, you know, that was a bummer to me, but it, I didn't, the idea that one person could have done it was beyond my belief anyway. Um, so it was more just like this consistent reading and learning and talking to people and recognizing that we just don't have to do things the way that we always have. And we can, in fact, totally change everything. We just all have to believe that it's true and, and prioritize it. Um, so it was just, it was just a slow move for me, but I don't know. I yeah. mean, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I think, well, I think that it's really interesting that you're saying, uh, and, and, and Dan, if you want to jump in the call queue, uh, I can take you next. Um, but I think that's interesting that you're saying, you know, when you were younger that you, that you saw, uh, you know, compromise on both sides as as kind of like the mature way to do this stuff. The reason I find that interesting is because that is like that's intentional from the way from the way that you're like told yeah. the way that this stuff works in the media and in school and from people who like quote unquote know about politics. You know, all, all this stuff all sends this message mm -hmm. but you know it's not until you get older that you start to if you start to actually confront what that actually means that you realize that it's not true at all you know that or or that if it is true it's only true in a limited way and so i i just i think that it's it was just an interesting turn of phrase that you had there and i thought that it really like uh, that really sounded like something that i remember hearing um when I was younger as well. And I think everybody kind of hears that as well. I mean, that is the way that we are taught, even as adults, even now, to think of politics, even in the current political moment, when it's clear that the only way that you can get anything done is to not compromise, we're still taught that. <laughs> right. Right. It's really, I think it's really baked into a lot of our philosophies in general that we need to both compromise, except it's only really seems to be baked into one side because the right doesn't seem to have that, that problem um, nearly as much, or at least it, from a political perspective, Mitch McConnell does it really well. He does not bother compromising. Uh, and so then it's just, he understands power. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So then you end up with just one party sort of bending to the will and calling it a compromise, uh, which is incredibly frustrating. 
Absolutely. So I'm going to take Dan up, but more if you want to hang out, maybe we can uh, chat a little bit more here. But I'm just going to, here we go. Here we go. All right. Uh, I think uh, I think my mic's hot. Yep, you're good. You're good. All right. Uh, hey, Owen, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. So um, just a quick intro. Uh, you know, Dan and I talked for the Democrat story. So, uh, you know, he's coming in having already spoken about this stuff, uh, you know, for the print edition here. And yeah, I invited you on and I w- was hoping you could kind of ex- uh, share your experience and maybe expand on a little bit more what you were telling me in. The- mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, kind of looking back on my own sort of political biography, you might call it uh, like I don't necessarily kind of looking back on it. I, I think my my instincts were always pretty left oriented, but I had a very like. I don't know. I, I, I had I had a trust in the kind of the constitution and institutions, you know, the kind of liberal institutions that I that I thought were constructed in such a way as to be a vehicle for the expression of these priorities, right? Like I I, I believe that that was possible. And it really that really eroded over the course of the Obama administration, partly because in the OA campaign, like I you know, I, I was uh my first election that I was eligible for was 2004. So I got to, uh, you know, impotently cast my vote for John Kerry in Alabama. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I'd had, I sort of had enough of a kind of comprehension of the democratic party as an institution. And I learned enough about kind of the recent political history to have a pretty good grip on like, well, yeah, the democratic party isn't necessarily your friend, but that the, you know, it was the democratic leadership committee was the big boogeyman for me. Right. It was like that triangulating Clintonism, you know, the, that I, that I, you know, even, even when I still like thought the democratic party could you know do anything, I recognized that like, Oh, Bill Clinton was just the second coming of Ronald Reagan. Okay. So the, the fact that in the 08 campaign, the kind of the DLC Clinton wing of the party was defeated by somebody who was using rhetoric, who was talking about a lot of things that were my priorities. I thought that was, and of course, after eight years of George W. Bush, you know, like I thought that was going to be the break in the dam. That's where I thought, oh, here's where this party can actually become a vehicle for, you know, these kinds of these, these sentiments, priorities that I have. Even though I, I wouldn't even claim them, I, I remember uh, I, I took a, I don't know if y'all are old enough to have had live journals back in the early 2000s, but I, I took a live journal quiz or a quiz I found through live journal one time and like, what's your political orientation? And it gave me the result of socialist. And I wrote a live journal post arguing against that. I was like, well, maybe, but here's why I'm not, you know, because I, I don't know. <laughs> it was, it was a very, you know, that was a word you didn't throw around all that much. And so it was a real, like, my kind of trust in the idea that the uh, Democratic Party could be a vehicle for these kind of priorities and sentiments that I had eroded over the course of the Obama years. The the fact that he was given a Nobel Peace Prize before he even did anything kind of put, like, realized that, like, oh, a lot of this kind of elite self-congratulation is really stupid. Um, and it just sort of gradually eroded over the course of, you know, the... the uh, massively kneecapped recovery the demolition of black wealth in the foreclosure crisis never came back the uh you know anemic recovery clearly weighted toward the worst actors in our society just getting you know richer and richer libya war all these things and so 
when 2016 rolled around, I was really, I guess I was kind of one of those people who was really ready and primed for a, for a bigger break than I think a lot of people anticipated. And Bernie Sanders's role in that, I was really, I mean, honestly, I, I was a little gun shy about it all just because I remembered Obama, right? Like there was another guy who, at least in his rhetoric, was taking on the Democratic Party establishment and was, you know, talking about these things. But I think what really made the difference is that he he openly claimed the label socialist. And that really helped me. And seeing other people really respond to his campaign while he was claiming the label socialist really helped put me over the edge and and think like, well, OK, now's the time to come to reckoning about like, what do I believe and what do I want to see happen and how can I see that happen? And sort of introducing myself to a body of thought in history that I had previously kind of purposefully ignored because, well, that's not possible or whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, so eventually after, you know, it was kind of funny, my, my uh, kind of the beginning of my kind of political commitment outside of the Democratic Party and with kind of an organized left organization came when the day before, the night before the 2016 election, I became a member of uh, DSA with an intent to found a chapter here in Birmingham, because I thought it would be incom- it would be really important and a big priority to have an independent left wing organizational counterweight to the right wing Hillary Clinton administration, <laughs> uh, which of course you know events took a, a turn that surprised everybody. But um, yeah. So I, I, I just want to say, and this is, you know, this is for the benefit of, of people who will be listening to this uh, after the fact. But, you know, if you're younger than I think pretty much everybody in this conversation, um, you might be wondering why we're all kind of, ta- or not all, but, but a lot of us are talking about how happy and excited we were when Obama was elected. And you got to understand that eight years of George W. Bush was an absolute nightmare. I mean, it, it was like four years of Trump was really, really, really bad. Um, eight years of Trump would have been worse than eight years of Bush. But at eight years of Bush, I mean, those were dark times. Like, like a lot of really, really, really bad stuff was happening. It's very, very hard. I'm sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit here, but it's very, very hard to explain <laughs> the way that people thought about the world and the way that people thought about politics and the way that that changed, not only after 9-11, but, but mostly because of the way that Bush and his people used it and manipulated it. And, 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 and just, I mean, it, it was a nightmare. So when we're talking about getting excited about Obama being elected. Like, yes, like part of it were his promises that he ended up breaking. Part of it um, was the fact that, you know, this was a candidate who had run, you know, with an implied anti-war stance, you know, with, with all the caveats about like what happened after that. But I, I would say, at least for me, a huge, huge reason that, that this reaction, you know, came out of me was that it was a rejection of George Bush and his politics or what seemed like that after eight years. And so I, 
I'm sorry for interrupting here, but I just kind of wanted to explain that because I think that I, I think that sometimes that's not, you know, I just want to make sure that that's coming through. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like I, I would be, it, it would actually be difficult for me to explain to, uh, to a younger person, just like what kind of like little relief and excitement there was in that, like knowing that these wishes, which were, you know, just the, one, one of the absolute naders, uh, I mean, as, as nasty and caustic as the culture wars are now, uh, you know, doing, doing culture war shit and like leveraging hatred of gays to keep your war machine in power. I mean, it's just, was just so disgusting and you just had to sit and watch it happen. Um, that the, the idea that that could be defeated with a message of, uh, you, you know, dignity and, uh, and some sort of change to the way things were done was really intoxicating. And then, but it also like the, that being set up so high and having those kind of you know, expectations destroyed, it really makes you start start to think why, you know, why is it so valuable and worthwhile to the democratic party to demolish, you know, to, to, to be actively hostile to those rhetorical promises in practice, like what function does that play for them? And that's where it starts, you start getting a kind of a more sophisticated idea of what power is and what politics is, what politics is for and how it works. And so, so I'll give Obama credit for that. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, Max, you're all okay. you're yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I don't have much more to say. I guess just I think it got hit on by you in the beginning, just based on how many responses you got. But uh, when you said, like, how many responses you got to your question, it's just that. And uh, Maura brought it up about I, I had heard the same thing, like the, you know, Everyone told me you're going to get more conservatives as you aged, and I got progressively more left. And I think you know, almost all of my friends, at least my close friends, have gotten have gone to the to the left um, as as we've aged, um, which is very much in opposition to I guess what we heard. And I think it's probably just a very that you know my parents are baby boomers, very different situation that they found themselves in where they were able to very easily, it seems, um, you know, they had cheap college, found jobs easily, got very wealthy um, as they as they got older. And uh, you just, I guess, a lot of my friends aren't seeing the same thing. And, uh, you know, I think that it got a very particular moment in time kind of got extrapolated into a, you know, something that was al always going to happen, which um, I think is why we see a lot of people going left. And then I mean, apart from, I'm not really in contact with him. I have one person I know who I went to, you know, like middle school and high school with, who I just see on Facebook and things, who've gotten more and more. He's probably the only one I know of my age, like more into Trumpism and very far right um, in a way that I don't know any other friend has gone. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, like a lot of the people who I grew up with have, have definitely... Um... Have, have have not been going right as we've gotten older. And, but I don't know like how much of that is, you know, this kind yeah. of system wide thing. I mean, is it, is it just because I don't know that, you know, I mean, Churchill, I think is the one who said that things were a lot different back then. Things, it still seemed like things were improving every generation. I think the last couple of generations, it's, it, you know, that promise doesn't seem to quite be there anymore. 
you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's kind of where, where we're at right now with that. Um, uh, Maura and Alex, I'm sorry, you guys got bounced there. Uh, if you want to jump back on, we'll see if we can get you back on. Uh, but Max, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I don't think I have that much else beyond, I, you know, hope, hope that, you know, this will, you know, the fact that this is happening to people will, you know, eventually lead to some change. And I, the few Gen Z people I know seem to be similarly situated, starting from an even like further left place than I did. And, um, but, you know, who knows what will happen as I, my age right now, it, for me, it looks kind of bleak, but I'm still trying to hold up hope for the very least, just the fact that I have a two year old and it, you know, if I get too, um, looks too bleak for me, I don't, you know, it's, it's hard to face that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure. Um, and, and Alex, just give me one second and, and, and I'll take a call here, but, um, you know, one of the, one of the next, uh, stories that I'm going to be coming out with here, um, on this topic is about kind of catastrophe and how catastrophe can lead to people going left. So this will be kind of more of kind of more of a story that'll be about, you know, extreme events rather than, you know, what we're talking about here is more political change and, and these kind of system wide change. This is, this is going to be kind of more like sometimes there are these kind of shock issues, shock moments where the way that you kind of thought of things has changed and you, you have to react in a certain way. So Alex, let's, I think you're good to go. If you want to unmute yourself there. Oh, yay. It worked. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, as far, I think, um, like, I guess for me anyway, cause I'm of the same generation that we're talking about here where I think it was pretty much true in the late nineties when I was growing up that like, that you could hope to get a job and like buy a house and all that stuff. And that stuff stopped being true. Um, I, I think that probably the peel off from Obama isn't as severe as like the 2016, like moving people to the left just because people aren't like, at least in my estimation, it seems like unless you're really looking for the information, like, like pre iPhone, pre all that stuff, pre, pre, you know, ubiquitous social media. Um, it's hard to break through and figure out like what is actually happening. Whereas now we have all the information that's easier to reach people. There's more of a left media sphere. Um, so you can see that Biden's not fulfilling any of his campaign promises. I feel like in a much more like direct way than you could during Obama, where you kind of just had to look for the information. Um, I was out of the country. I was living in England at the time that he was elected. And I was just relieved to have somebody that wasn't embarrassing us like Bush was world, like worldwide, because when I'd admit that I was American to people and not Canadian, <laughs> um, you know, I'd get a lot of shit just for being American because of Bush. Um, so I wasn't around for like his whole election or anything, but I do know that it seemed like he was doing a good job from where I was at. Um, but you know, there was no, there was no ability for me to kind of like easily access dissenting voices on the left or anything like that in 2008. Whereas now I think, you know, it's easy to log on to most sites and, and see opinions on the left and see, uh, left accountability for a, d a democratic president. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's social media, there are, 
news organizations. Um, I mean, there's 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 audio podcasts. There's apps like like uh, Colin where where you can get in, you know, join join these rooms and stuff and talk to people. I mean, the ability to connect to people is has has expanded so much that that I think. I think that does have a lot to do with it and has a lot to to do with how people's politics can change quickly. And, and, you know, you can, you can find a different, different point of view fast. I I also remember going overseas uh, during the Bush years and being embarrassed about being American for sure. Oh, it was, it was super embarrassing. I was just happy to have a statesman back, you know, like I didn't know what the hell was going on. It just seemed like he was kind of okay compared to that Bush guy. Not knowing that. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, people overseas loved Obama. Yeah. They, they loved, loved him. Yeah. Um, uh, Maura, did you want to jump back on? If you do, just jump into the queue. Um, Alex, uh, you know, one thing Dan was saying, he was saying that he joined DSA as well. And I was wondering, you know, what that kind of. Did, did you hear something yourself when you were talking, when, when he was talking? Did you, you yeah. probably could kind of relate to a little bit of that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the biggest thing for me was was DSA has a theory of change, period. What do could, like could one person tell me what the Democrat theory of change is at this point? There's not it doesn't like the, the theory is like we're not the fascists, but there's no theory of change of how they're actually going to make life better. Right. It's a, it's vote for more of us. Give us 65. You know, and we did that. We've had six, it was 60 senators, right? <laughs> but I don't know what their actual theory of change right. is even now. So, you know, you have to assume they don't have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for for sure. Um, well, I think, um, let's see, if anybody else wants to jump into the queue, but I think maybe we'll start wrapping up here. It's been about an hour. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for for joining us. I think this has been a really interesting conversation getting these different perspectives you know like i said uh you know at the top obviously this is a self-selected group and and it is as well in my print articles you know uh, you guys and and you know the people who are going to be listening to this and people who are reading a lot of my stuff uh, in in a lot of ways are certainly on the left but i think it's interesting to kind of find out how people got there and what and what events were that you know that changed that and 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 made you go from you know the center even being a liberal to the to further on the left so yeah um i think it's an interesting conversation i think we're definitely going to have to do a part two of this um maybe in january or in february Think so. Next week we're going to have a couple of guests. Um, I think we're going to hopefully. Um, well, I don't want to speak for that guest yet. Hopefully, we're going to have a relatively uh, big guest. Uh, we're probably going to have Amanda Frank as well, who is the woman who went undercover in the far right for about a year. And so we're going to talk to her about what she found out and, and just all the all the information that she was able to collect. Then uh, the next week after that, we're going to talk to Ed Ungweso. Uh, I think this is the way that you pronounce his name. I apologize if it's not. Uh, we're going to talk to him about tech, the year in tech. And we're going to talk to Jeet here uh, about U.S. politics. 
And that'll probably bring us to the end of the year. So hopefully uh, we'll see you then. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Again, if you want to stay up with my print stuff, it's at eoinhiggins.substack.com. That's owenhiggins.substack.com. Alex, Max, Dan, Mora, thank you all so much for speaking and talking to me. Um, and everybody have a great weekend.